Our scripture today comes to us from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, it's been a while since I've gotten to preach here at noon and FUMC, and a few things have happened, uh, including getting married to a dare. I keep saying that, but that's just the most recent big thing, and it's a great thing that's happened to me. Now, the days, I want to say the days and the months leading up to the wedding were busy, but the weekend of the wedding, we were ready. I mean, I think we were ready. So, So many of you leading up to that day told us that we should just try to savor it as much as we can, that it goes by so fast. So take it all in. And honestly, I think, I think we did. Now, we knew not everything was going to go perfectly. We expected things to happen, some unforeseen issues, like some folks not to show, or maybe there was a time crunch here and there. I think we expected some food, getting on shirts or dresses, any sort of spill. But I think we generally expected the weekend to be fairly predictable, except for one or two things, or rather one or two people, I should say our flower girl and ring bearer, two of the cutest humans I've ever met, both under the age of three, were undoubtedly going to be unpredictable. Grant, go ahead and show a picture. These are Adair's uh, nephew and niece, Scott and Dorothy. Uh, They love each other, Uh, one by one of Adair's sisters and one by another. And sure enough, before the ceremony, after Adair and I had taken our first pictures, we were hanging out in the fellowship hall of the church with these kiddos. Uh, Little Scott, the wonderful rule-following ring bearer, and Dorothy, the amazing and fantastic wild card. Uh, They were just being kids, running around and screaming and laughing and being silly, just, you know, being kids, but like, they were really being kids. And I think it was at that point that Adair and, and my eyes locked, and we knew that the processional of the wedding could go any number of ways. So we went into the sanctuary and I lined up with my groomsmen and the pastors, one of which was my dad. 
We processed in and stood at the front, and then, as most weddings go, one by one, the bridesmaids walked down, and then it was time for Scott and Dorothy. And sure enough, in the calm and the beauty of the moment, Scott walked down, sort of at his own pace, and he left Dorothy behind. Dorothy kind of was taking it all in on her own. She just stopped in the middle of the aisle and kind of wanted to visit with folks. But as Scott walked down, he had his little ring bearer pillow that didn't have the rings on it, but as he walked down, he proceeded just to swing it kind of violently the whole way down. And he arrived near the end, his mom waiting for him and, and Dorothy's mom waiting for her. And I've, I pulled a clip from the wedding because I want you to see what happened. So Grant, play the first clip. This is uh, Scott. We're finishing up with the procession with the bridesmaids. That's Scott's mom who just finished walking. And then Scott and Dorothy come in. And you wouldn't know it because they're not on screen because they're taking their time. They're enjoying the moment like you, many of you told us to do. And then Scott somewhat maybe enters into the picture. Here he comes, swinging the pillow. And right as he's about to approach, <laughs> poor Scott took a tumble. Poor guy made it all the way down and right at the end, he took a tumble. And suddenly, immediately after that, Dorothy, who was in the back, looking around, talking to folks, meeting strangers, Dorothy suddenly remembered that she too was supposed to be walking, and she saw Scott take a dive, and then this happened. Play the, the next clip, Grant. Maybe the next one. Are they both the same? comes Dorothy. Dorothy sprinted down and when she saw Scott fall she thought to herself I need to fall too. So she ran down the aisle and fell on purpose. Now I remember watching all of this with this big smile on my face just loving every minute of it. I also remember looking out in the congregation uh, seeing everybody smiling except for one or two faces that did not look as pleased. Now I'm sure this person or two thought to themselves, this is not how it's done. <laughs> or this is why we don't need toddlers at weddings. Look at what just happened. And I knew some might see it that way. I mean, for a second, I might have even thought it as well. But then I changed gears. I saw something, I, I saw it another way. Something that might be a little bit chaotic. I immediately thought to myself, this is God's way, way of making sure that we don't take ourselves too seriously today. This is fun. And this is how it should be. Now, what I did in the moment, I was later told by a psychological expert, it was called reframing. It comes from the more scientific term cognitive reframing, which means identifying and then changing the way situations or experiences or ideas are viewed. I saw an event, I thought about it, and I reframed it. I changed it. Harvard psychologist Ashley Willens recently wrote a book that I've been reading called Time Smart. And she studies how people use their time. And in her book, she looks at what it is that makes people happy when it comes to time versus money. And she tries to help the reader figure out how to find more time throughout the day and or how to use 
the time better. And one of her tools is called reframing. If you can reframe the aspects of work or life that you dread or look least forward to, the evidence suggests that you'll become happier or at least a little less stressed. For example, if you commute to work but reframe the drive as a time by which you might catch up on an audiobook, the commute gets easier, the time now has a little bit more meaning. Or if you spend a lot of time on your feet but reframe your day according to the steps that you count and even reach your goal, the day feels different. In one, in one study, when told to imagine that it was their last month in the city where they lived, people suddenly gained greater satisfaction from time that otherwise went by unnoticed and undervalued, such as walking through a park or noticing art and seeing pets and people. These folks became reframers. They reframed the way they thought and it changed the way they lived. Friday, my father and I spent the entire day learning how to fly fish. Any, any fly fishermen in the room? In the morning, we learned how. In the afternoon, we were practicing and getting the hang of it. By the evening, we had it down. But our guide, Steve, we had a guide, and he was so helpful in teaching us how to tie flies, to cast our lines, and to find fish. But throughout the day, he was also helping us to see how the art of fly fishing might play a role in changing how we see and spend our time and how we live our lives. We came away from that experience knowing that Steve was our guide in fly fishing, but also in changing the way we thought about a few things. Steve was a reframer. Now, the Ephesians had a guide for reframing, Paul. In fact, I'd argue that Paul's main job in the New Testament in all his letters is to reframe. Paul saw it as his duty to demonstrate the truth and knowledge of Jesus Christ, but in so many new and different ways all the time. And the same can be said for his letter to the Ephesians. Paul is kind of their reframing guide. Now remember, Paul spent two years in Ephesus, this huge city, an epicenter of the gods and of commerce. He spent time making relationships, learning the area and the people. And in our passage for today, he's writing from prison to this church in Ephesus, and he is in the middle of addressing the Gentile Christians of the church. Remember, the church is made up of Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and everyone in between, and some not in between. Paul says to his friends, remember, at one point, you were Gentiles. You weren't a part of the covenant people, Israel. You were aliens, not citizens of this holy community. You didn't know God or the promises of the law, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he is our peace, and in his body, he has made both groups, Gentiles and Jews, into one. He's broken down the dividing wall, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with all its commands and regulations that he might create himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. I love the way that Eugene Peterson writes in the message. He says, the Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both outsiders and insiders. He tore down the wall used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that it had that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped, and then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. What is Paul doing? What is, what is he telling these Gentile Christians in Ephesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, in much of the storyline of the New Testament, there's this conflict 
there's this division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, kind of over what should remain. Should the Torah remain and do the Gentiles need to abide by it? Should we be allowed to share a meal between the two groups? Are Jewish Christians even allowed to eat the food given in honor of the Roman gods? I mean, this is, this is the backdrop of some of the conflict that started and continued through a lot of the first century. And Paul is trying to address the bickering through a, a sort of reframing. Paul is trying to let this church know that there is no more his and hers, there is no more ownership of what has been or what could be. Paul asks them to reframe their place in the story, to think about it this way, to all of them. And he says to this church, what might it look like if all of you approached this new faith with the understanding that anyone who is in Christ is brand new? What might it look like if you knew that you were no longer Jewish and that you were no longer Gentile, but rather you were a brand new thing? What if the only community of faith that you could be a part of is the community where you are both in it together? What might it look like if from now on you knew that you were a part of a new humanity empowered by Christ who is peace to be peace bringers into the world? Paul is trying to reframe what's going on. He's trying to get them to think in a different way. He's trying to change their thought process. One of my professors in, in seminary once told my class, I'm not here to teach you what to think. I'm here to teach you how to think. And Paul is trying to give them a how. Paul is working to get this church to think in a different way. So he reframes the miraculous new covenant of Jesus Christ. I know you aren't physically different, but imagine if you were. Imagine if you were a brand new human being in a brand new people group, but all of you happen to be in the same group. Paul's reframing. And later, he continues when he writes this, you are no longer strangers, but citizens, members of the house of God, built upon a foundation and growing into a new structure. Everyone starts over now. Everyone is part of one new humanity now. Everyone is being built into this holy temple now. He's imploring these folks to think a little differently. Why not? Reframe the situation, the narrative, and see what happens. Maybe the question shouldn't be, who do we then become, Jews or Gentiles? Maybe the question should be, what if we became one new thing, one new humanity, and what if we operate from here on out as if we were that one thing? Paul is a reframer. But you can understand why he thinks that way, right? Why Paul would be into reframing conflict and understanding. I mean, he learned from one of the best. Jesus said to them, guard against greed. They looked confused. Then he said, try this. A rich man had a good crop one year. Or teacher, what is the kingdom of God like? Try this. Who has a mustard seed? Or, or Jesus noticed everyone clamoring for the best seats at the table. So he said to everybody, hey, 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 listen to this. There once was a man who hosted a dinner just like this one. A legal expert asked Jesus, what is the most important command? Jesus said, love God and love neighbor. Yeah, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, think of it this way. A man was traveling to Jericho and encountered some thieves on the road. Jesus was an expert at helping people think differently, at reframing the situation or event or question at hand. And it makes sense. Because the triune nature of God has always aimed at reframing. In the beginning, 
God reframed chaos into order. In the story of Exodus, God reframed an ashamed murderer into the leader of a justice movement. In the beginnings of the Gospels, average fishermen and apprentices and tax collectors were reframed into messengers of ultimate freedom and abundance. And in one event that changed the course of history, God reframed torture, death, and burial, typically covered in fear and shame, into the ultimate act of mercy and forgiveness and salvation. But God didn't stop there. God continues to help us change the way we understand, the way we think, the way we see things. God continues to reframe the world around us. I mean, you know what it means to reframe, to look at things differently. Moments after the storm passed, in the hours and days and weeks after realizing the damage, you began reframing destruction into opportunity, loneliness into togetherness. And in VBS this year, Betsy and Meredith and Andrea and so many sought not just another VBS, but a means of hope to this community. It's been a hard year and a really tough couple of months. So come find joy here. So many kids who didn't have a church home left thinking a little differently about church. Perhaps there had been some reframing. You are reframers. And in the midst of constant conflict and division in our culture, our politics, and even in our churches, it seems to me that we might need some of that. We might need a little of what we've seen, some reframing. We might need to change up how we talk or how we listen. Maybe we need to ask some new questions. Maybe we need to try and see things in a new way. Maybe we need to pray for God to help us reframe hard things and decisions and questions. We are in need of some reframing. So, may you remember that the God who loves you and the God who loves me is actively asking us to think differently, to reframe hard things and to see things through God's eyes. May you remember the moment God reframed you with a grace that caused you to be born anew and into one new humanity when the whole world became filled with hope and joy and possibilities. May you remember that the God of Paul and the Ephesians once sought to end the fighting between two groups by making sure that they knew they were actually not two, but a new one. And may every new thing, every new reframe lead you to a stronger and better and deeper peace. And may God show us each what peace looks like, the peace that takes two sides, two people groups, two divided ends, and makes them into a new and beautiful one. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are thankful that you are a teacher. And gracious God, I... I give you thanks that you have turned us all into learners, that we might see things new, that we might be able to process and understand differently. God, I thank you for the many people in our lives who have helped us reframe questions or problems or opportunities. God, I thank you for the examples in our lives, the examples in scripture, the examples across the world who continue to help us think in new ways. 
So God, I pray that as we continue to worship, as we continue to serve this community, that you must, might point us to the right questions to ask, that we might think create, creatively about how to minister better, how to reach folks better. God, we know that there are folks in this community who need your love, who need a home. So I pray that we would strive to be that together. A place of grace for all. And that we might remember that we are indeed one. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.